Well, as Seth mentioned earlier, this August we've been doing a topical sermon series called Knowing Christ. Uh, We've been considering what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus is to his people. And so the first week we considered what it means that Jesus is our perfect friend. Uh, The following week we considered what it means that Jesus is our beloved brother. And this morning, we're going to think about what it means that Jesus is our king. Now, I realize that uh, the difficulty of the task before me, you know, most of you are Americans, and I'm about to talk about the glory and the beauty of living under a monarchy, but I hope that you'll give me a chance. You see, kingship is one of the major themes of the Bible. God himself is presented to us as a king. He is the king with a capital K, infinite in glory and majesty, power and authority. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when God made people in his own image, they were given a kingly role. They were told to subdue the earth and exercise dominion. In a very real sense, Adam was the first human king. So, for example, in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, Adam is referred to as the Son of God. Now, in the ancient world, the term Son of God was actually a royal title that was often given to kings. However, Adam failed in his kingly role. He lost his kingdom in Eden. And so there needed to be a new king, a new Adam, a new ruler of a new Eden. And so the rest of the Bible is on the lookout for this king. And so throughout the Old Testament, we encounter many kings. It was a job of the king to rule over his domain, to protect his people, to conquer any known enemies. Now at first, God's people, the nation of Israel, they didn't have a king. That's because God was their king. He promised to rule over them, to protect them, and to fight on their behalf. All they needed to do was to walk in obedience and faith. But as time went on, God's people became discontent. They wanted to be like the nations around them. You see, having God as their king wasn't enough. They demanded that they have a human king to rule over them. And so God gave Israel what they wanted. He gave them kings, lots of kings, in fact. Now, most of these kings were terrible. Even the best human king failed, and the search for a new and better Adam seemed hopeless. Yet in the midst of all this failure, God kept making promises, promises of a future king who was to come, a perfect king. And we read about that promised king earlier in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is actually the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Here we see God, the Lord in in capitals there, speaking to someone that King David calls my Lord. In this psalm, King David, who is really Israel's greatest Old Testament king, he's prophesying about a king who was to come, who is greater than him. And notice what God says to this future king. He invites him to sit at his right hand in the position of honor, authority, and power. 
and he makes this future king a promise, and he promises to make his enemies his footstool. Uh, this was really an ancient metaphor for victory and dominion. The king is, is pictured sitting on his throne with his feet up, resting in judgment on his enemies, on his conquered foes. And so here is the king of God's people. Here is the king they've been waiting for, the Messiah, the Christ, the true and better son of God. Someone who will once and for all conquer all his and his people's enemies. And he comes in the most unusual circumstances. A poor teenage virgin from a backwater town is visited by an angel. And the angel gives her some surprising news in Luke chapter 1. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This promised king is none other than Jesus Christ. And in every way, Jesus fulfilled the role of a king. But how did he do that exactly? So how did he carry out his royal task? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is really helpful here, I think. So question 26 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is this, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I think that's a really helpful, succinct summary of how Jesus executes his role as a king. Jesus subdues us to himself. He makes rebels his obedient subjects. He rules over us and defends us from harm. He holds back and ultimately vanquishes all his and our enemies. But who are, who are these enemies exactly? And, and, and how does King Jesus conquer them? And why, why is this the best news in the world? Well, that's what I'd like to devote the rest of our time to this morning. I want to look at three enemies that Jesus conquered on our behalf. And my hope is that we'll leave here delighting in the reality that Jesus is our king. So, first of all, Jesus conquered Satan. Jesus conquered Satan. We love a good villain, don't we? Thanos, Darth Vader, Sauron, Simon Legree, Hannibal Lecter, Norman Bates, the White Witch, he who must not be named, 18th century Britain. <laughs> you know, a story, a story isn't a good story if it doesn't have a terrible villain. Because there's something about that moment when the mighty villain is overcome, when they're finally defeated, that just brings us so much joy. Have you ever stopped to wonder why that is? Like, why is it such a a cathartic experience when the hero of the story finally conquers the terrible villain. Well, maybe it's because of this, that woven 
into the fabric of the universe is the story of a true villain, a real enemy that must be overcome if there's to be a happy ending. So if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we learn about that enemy. So in Genesis chapter 1, God commissioned humanity to rule over the earth, to exercise dominion on his behalf. However, in Genesis chapter 3, a rebel slithers onto the scene and he tempts Adam and Eve to join him in the rebellion. This individual, we find out later, is none other than Satan. Now, the name Satan simply means adversary. He is the quintessential enemy of God and his people. Now, if Adam was a good king, he'd have crushed the head of this enemy. However, instead of conquering Satan, Adam and Eve choose to join his rebellion. They wanted to rule, not under God, but over God. Now, we might have expected God to destroy humanity at this moment, but instead, he makes a gracious promise. He says to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 3.15, war is declared and victory is promised. God says that he will send a suffering conqueror who will triumph over Satan. Now, you might be wondering, why do we need someone to triumph over Satan? What makes this individual such a formidable and terrible enemy? Well, throughout the Bible, Satan is given many names. And these names tell us a lot about what kind of enemy he is. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 4, he's famously called the devil. Now, don't picture a guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork here. The word devil simply means slanderer. So, one of the things that Satan does is make false, malicious, insulting accusations. That might sound like many of the people that you've met online, but Satan is the slanderer par excellence. Sometimes he slanders God. So he says things like, God can't be trusted. God isn't good. God doesn't love you. God doesn't really mean what he says. You know, God, he's holding out on you. God's out to get you. Other times, Satan slanders people. He says things like, you're such a failure. There's no hope for someone like you. You're worthless, dirty, useless. But that's not all. In First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, Satan is called the tempter. He can't make us sin. However, he can tempt us to sin. Satan knows that sin leads to death and judgment. And so he's literally hell-bent on getting us to sin. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what circumstances and situations and people tempt us most. And he's had thousands of years to master his craft. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, Satan is called the evil one. He's the personification of evil and wickedness. In Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. In John 16, he's called the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, he's called the God of this age. All those names signify that Satan is someone with rule and power and authority. 
There's a sense in which Satan rules over this fallen world. And like all rulers, he has loyal subjects, obedient servants, children who carry out his will. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of his day. And notice what he says to them. He says to them, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus says that Satan is a murderer, the father of lies. Satan is anti-truth and anti-life. That's why Jesus says that anyone who doesn't believe in him is a child of the devil because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is important because it means that nobody is neutral. Spiritually speaking, none of us are sitting on the fence because according to Jesus, we're either a child of Satan or a child of God. And it's belief in him that tells us which family we belong to. Lastly, in Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser. He delights in pressing charges against God's people. He loves to bring up their sin in God's courtroom. He loves to crush people with guilt and shame. Friends, this is your enemy. He's cunning, powerful, deadly. That's why Peter tells us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, look, I realize that in talking about the devil, some of you are skeptical. You know, like maybe you're thinking, this is silly. Come on, surely modern intelligent people don't still believe in the devil, do they? You know, we live in a time and place where people are suspicious of the supernatural. Many people find it hard to believe in things that they can't see and taste and touch and hear. Interestingly, though, as, as, as belief in the supernatural has waned, fascination with the supernatural hasn't. So, for example, year after year, some of the biggest gross movies are from the horror genre. So in 2017 alone, horror movies made over a billion dollars. And what makes this particularly intriguing is that until a few hundred years ago, horror stories didn't even exist. So the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor thinks he can tell us why. He says that horror stories didn't exist a few hundred years ago because everyone believed in the supernatural. Everyone believed that there were evil, unseen forces that were out to get us. It kept people up at night. And so why on earth would people make up stories about things that already terrified them? But we live in a different time, don't we? Although most people in the world still believe in the supernatural, many people in the West no longer do. Yet the supernatural still fascinates us. Why is that? Well, maybe the huge interest in horror movies is partly because of this. They make invisible, 
spiritual realities visible? You know, maybe they're our way of coping with the evil we can't see, but deep down we know is there. You know, we might suppress the truth, but the truth always has a way of manifesting itself. There's this great line in the movie, The Usual Suspects. It comes from a character named Verbal, who's played by Kevin Spacey. Uh, the police, they've been searching for a killer. And throughout the movie, the killer has been in their midst. But they never suspect him. It's almost like he's invisible. And by the time they figure it out, it's just too late. And then Verbal, he delivers that classic line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Imagine an enemy who is smarter than you and more powerful than you. The only thing that could make that enemy more dangerous is if you didn't believe he existed. You wouldn't stand a chance. But let's just say most of us, or let's just say most of the world isn't crazy when they believe in the supernatural. Let's imagine that most of human history wasn't ignorant to believe in unseen evil forces. Let's just take the Bible's word for it when it says that there is an individual called Satan. What hope do we have against such a mighty foe? Well, the good news is that in Jesus Christ, we have much hope. Because unlike Adam, the Lord Jesus did not give in to the devil's temptation. Throughout his life, Jesus showed his authority over Satan. So over 20% of his miracles involved casting out demons. He did this to show that he was the king who had come to triumph over the prince of this world. But Jesus' ultimate victory over Satan came at the cross. So turn to Colossians chapter 2, which we read earlier in our service. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now the rulers and authorities in verse 15 there, they're not human governments that Paul's talking about. They're actually satanic powers. So for example, in a, in a parallel passage, Ephesians 6, Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul's telling us that Jesus disarmed, triumphed over Satan and his kingdom. And how did he do that? He did it on the cross. Now maybe you're thinking, hold on, how, on, how did Jesus defeat Satan by dying. Well, here's how. On the cross, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us. 
He, he took our sin and he nailed it to the cross. You see, Satan's main weapon is accusation. After all, he is the accuser. He loves to stand before God and accuse us of our sin and our guilt. He loves to demand our righteous condemnation. But by taking our sin upon his shoulders and being condemned in our place, the Lord Jesus has disarmed the devil. Our debt has been paid once and for all. In Jesus Christ, we no longer stand guilty. Who can bring any charge against God's people? Who is there to condemn? Satan's list of accusations has been nailed to the cross. The book of Revelation points forward to that time when Satan will once and for all be destroyed, when he'll be cast into hell forever. It says this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Satan was defeated at the cross, and Satan will be destroyed at the return of Christ. Now, here's what this means practically. You know, we, we have many enemies in this life, don't we? There are people that we fear because they can do us great harm. You know, there are bullies at school, slanderers online, Volatile bosses and devious co-workers. There are abusive spouses and oppressive parents. There are crooked cops and unjust judges. There are callous companies and corrupt governments. There are terrorists and tyrants. A world is full. A, a fallen world is full of enemies. However, there is no enemy that you have that is more powerful, more deadly, and more wicked than Satan. He is your adversary your accuser, your tempter. But in Christ Jesus, you have a king who is mightier than your foe. Through his death on the cross, he has conquered your greatest enemy. And that means in a world full of enemies, Christian, you have hope. The bad guys won't win. The villains won't be the victors. The bullies and persecutors and oppressors will be defeated. Those who defraud and defame and, and destroy, they will be judged. And it doesn't always feel that way, does it? You know, sometimes it feels like our enemies have won. You know, it certainly seemed that way on Good Friday when an innocent man was crowned with thorns, crucified between criminals and mocked with a sign that said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. But what looked like Jesus' defeat turned out to be his victory. And what looked like Satan's victory turned out to be his defeat. Friends, if our king has conquered Satan, we can trust him to rid the world of every other evil. He will bring justice to his elect. He will conquer all his and our enemies. 
So Satan's conquered, uh, sorry, Jesus has conquered Satan. Secondly, Jesus conquered sin. Jesus conquered sin. Uh, one of my favorite autobiographies is by the South African comedian and TV host, Trevor Noah. So early on in the book, he recounts a, a childhood memory. So he says, he says, my mother used to tell me, yeah, I, I chose to have you because I wanted something to love and something that would love me unconditionally in return. And then I gave birth to the most selfish piece of poop on earth. And all it ever did was cry and eat and poop and say to me, 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 me. You know, Trevor's Noah, Trevor, Trevor Noah's mother had such high hopes for motherhood. But she quickly realized, as most parents do, that her son had a problem. He had a self-centered heart that cried, me, 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 me. And you know what? The Bible would agree. It tells us that this me-centered heart is found not only in Trevor Noah, but in each and every one of us. It's a heart that puts ourselves rather than, God, rather than God at the center of the universe. And the Bible calls this sin. You know, if Satan is the enemy out there, then sin is the enemy in here. Now, why is sin our enemy? Well, first of all, sin leads to death. It leads to physical death, relational death, societal death. Sin ruins everything. But worst of all, sin leads to eternal death. Our sin against an infinitely holy God carries with it an infinitely devastating penalty. Before the judgment seat of God, all humanity stands condemned in our sin. And so if we're to have any hope of escaping God's righteous wrath, we need someone to conquer our sin. And that is exactly what Jesus has done. Remember what we just read in Colossians chapter 2. God has forgiven us all our trespasses. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our iniquities from us. And how's he done that? Well, Jesus has been punished in our place. Our sin has been nailed to the cross, cast into the deepest parts of the deepest sea. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty for sin has been paid. Justice has been served. That's why a Christian and only a Christian can sing the words of that great hymn. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Only a Christian can sing those words with joy because only a Christian can say Jesus is my king. And you know what? If you've never experienced that joy before, then I invite you today to trust Jesus as your savior and your king. But Jesus hasn't only removed the penalty for sin, he's also broken the power of sin. So for example, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we read this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy 
the works of the devil. Notice the link here between the devil and sin. Sin is a work of the devil. Whoever is a slave to sin is a slave to the devil. Those under the power of Satan can't help but sin. Now look, don't, don't mishear me here. I'm not saying that someone who isn't a Christian can't be a good person. So we all know people who don't believe in Jesus, yet they're kind and generous and loving. They're good members of society. But what the Bible is saying here is that apart from Jesus, we can't help but sin. So what is sin? Sin is breaking God's commands. And what does God command us? Well, the most important command God gives us is to love him above everything else. And apart from Jesus, we can't do that. Apart from Jesus, we can't love God. Apart from Jesus, we will love things other than God, created things, lesser things. We will look to things other than God to give us joy and peace and meaning and satisfaction. Another word the Bible uses for this is idolatry. It's to give glory and worth to something other than God, whether it's ourselves or our families or our countries or our careers or our possessions or anything else. Left to ourselves, we will live for something other than God. However, look at what John tells us. He says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is a king who breaks the power of sin. He frees us from its shackles. He enables us to live a life pleasing to God. You know, maybe the most famous passage on this truth is Romans chapter 6. In verse 4 we read, we were, the, we were buried therefore with him, that's Jesus, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, listen, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says Christians have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. His death becomes ours. He died to sin, therefore we died to sin. He rose from the grave, therefore we rose spiritually too. And that means we can walk in newness of life. He goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The olders, the person who loved to sin, who delighted in living for ourselves, who had no desire to please God, that person has been crucified with Christ. Therefore, Paul says, we are no longer enslaved to sin. When temptation comes along, a Christian is free to say no. When sin beckons us to feast at its table, we have an appetite for something better. We'd rather dine at the table of our king. You know, many of us have experienced this, haven't we? You know, there was a time in our lives when sin was so overpowering. I mean, we couldn't say no. We didn't want to say no. Our hearts constantly said, me, 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 me. But then Jesus saved us. And for the first time in our lives, sin became bitter. And obeying Jesus became sweet. Now don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that Christians no longer sin. 
Nor am I saying that once we trust in Jesus, sin just becomes utterly repulsive to us. You know, that attractive person still tempts us to lust. Our children still tempt us to anger. Our parents still tempt us to grumble. The approval and acclaim of others still tempts us to fear people. The power of money still tempts us to greed. Like everyone else, Christians attempted to idolize things like control and pleasure and possessions. A Christian can be selfish and judgmental and deceitful. Sin still has an influence on us, a powerful influence. We know that from experience, don't we? I don't, I don't have to prove that to you this morning. However, and this is so important, even though sin still influences, it doesn't control us. It doesn't dominate us. It's no longer our master. We no longer live in the realm where the tyrant of sin rules and reigns over us. We've, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and we've been brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. The power of sin has been broken by Jesus, our king. And that's such good news, isn't it? Because there are times when sin seems so appealing and even overpowering. You know, this coming, upcoming week, there'll be moments when you're tempted to discontentment or ungratefulness or selfishness, when you'll feel the pull of lust or envy or worldliness, when you'll find yourself growing impatient and irritable and frustrated, when you'll want to lie or gossip or hurt someone with your words. And in those moments, it might feel as though you have no option, no other option but to sin. But if Jesus is your king, then sin no longer has a hold on you. It's not your master anymore. It's control and power over you has been broken. You are free in Christ to say no. You have the power to put sin to death by the Spirit. You can walk in newness of life. By God's grace, you can choose to please God. But what about those times when you do choose to sin? When you do, in fact, give in to temptation? Well, the penalty for sin has been paid. So you're free to turn to God and receive forgiveness in Christ. You know, that's why we sing those great words by Charles Wesley. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So Jesus has conquered Satan. He's also conquered sin. He's paid the penalty for sin and he's broken the power of sin. And lastly, Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered death. Now, maybe you're here this morning and so far you've been skeptical. You know, maybe you, you just find it hard to believe that there's such a thing as Satan. Maybe you don't believe that you're a sinner. Maybe you don't think of Satan or sin as enemies that need to be defeated. But the reality and, and the horror of death is something that no one can deny. So in the 17th century, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, Imagine a number of men in chains, all under sentence of death, some of whom are each day butchered in the sight of others. Those remaining see their own condition in that of their fellows. And looking at each other with grief and despair, 
await their turn. This is the image of the human condition. That's kind of grim, isn't it? I bet you can't wait to leave here and read some more Blaise Pascal this, this afternoon. You know, but the reason that's just so unpleasant to read is just because it's, it's kind of true. You know, there is a sense in which every human being is on death row. And every death we hear about, whether it's on the news or even someone that we know, is a sign of what's to come for us. Because we know that one day it will be our turn. Death will knock on our door. We don't know when. All we can do is wait. Death is a terrible enemy. It's painful. It separates us from everyone and everything that we love. It's universal. It targets everyone without exception. It's unstoppable. We don't have the power to overcome it. You know, sometimes we can ignore death, but never for long. Sometimes we can delay death, but not forever. You know, wouldn't it be great if there was someone who had the power over death? Wouldn't it be the best news ever if someone could put death to death? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't it make you want to sing for joy if you had a king who reigned over this dreadful enemy that just puts a shadow over the whole earth? Well, in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, you have that king. So in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says, for he, that's Jesus, must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is not just one of our enemies, it's one of Jesus' enemies. And one day he will destroy it once and for all. But how do we know that Jesus has the power and authority to do such a thing? Well, it's because Jesus has already conquered death. Listen to Jesus' own words in John chapter 10. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Notice, notice here, Jesus repeatedly says that he didn't experience death against his will. I mean, he's the only human being to ever live to be able to that can say that. He willingly submitted himself to death. He laid down his life. He chose to die. Still haven't done that. Death could not hold him. He had authority to rise from the grave. Death had no claim on Jesus Christ. Now it's important to see the link here between Satan, sin and death, all these enemies we've been talking about. For example, the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter two, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. So it's saying Jesus partook of flesh and blood. He became a human being. Why did he do that? that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death 
the author of Hebrews tells us here, death is the devil's weapon. As the accuser, he demands death as a righteous punishment for our sin. Now, Satan might be a wicked lawyer, but that doesn't make his accusation untrue, does it? We deserve death because of our sin. But Jesus came to rescue us. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, he, yet he willingly died. He underwent the punishment for sin that we deserve. And in so doing, he took away death's claim on us. And then he rose from the grave in victory. As one writer put it, death did not come for Jesus. Jesus came for death. Brothers and sisters, this is your king. This is who you have on your side. This is the one who governs every aspect of your life. This is who rules and defends you. This is who welcomes you into his kingdom. This is who invites you to reign with him forever and ever. I mean, shouldn't this put everything else in our lives into perspective? Whatever suffering we might experience, whatever uncertainties lie ahead, whatever temptations we face, whatever sins we commit, whatever life throws at us, whatever we miss out on, whatever doesn't go according to plan, whatever bad news comes our way, we have a king who has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And one day, all those enemies will be destroyed because our glorious king is returning. And when he does, Satan and all of his followers will be cast into hell. Sin will be once and for all vanquished and death will be swallowed up forever. In Christ's eternal kingdom, there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The former things will have passed away. He will make all things new. And those who have trusted in Jesus will reign with him forever and ever. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent us a king to conquer all of our enemies. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you have conquered Satan and sin and death. What wonderful news. There is no news better than this. No news that should make us want to sing with all of our hearts. No news that brings such wonderful comfort in the miseries of this life. No news that should shape the way we live. Lord, we thank you so much that you, Lord Jesus, are our king. And we pray that we would live our lives in light of this wonderful truth. We pray all these things in your wonderful name. Amen.